Thank you, Dallas. Aren't we fortunate to have the musicians we have in this church? And I don't know about you, but uh, I'm glad we have a worship team leader back in town. <laughs> Thank you, Jim, and for the worship team. This morning, I feel like God has led me to bring a word that is a reminder to something that all of us know, and yet a reminder that all of us need from the oldest to the youngest. Now, this word you might think, well, Garrett, that's just fine for you. You're almost uh, 89 or somebody like Dorothy that's a hop, skip, and jump ahead of me. But I tell you, this word is for you if you're 15, 12 years old, or 110. Let me tell you how it happened. Last Saturday morning, a week ago yesterday, in my early morning prayer time, which usually begins before daybreak, as I began to intercede and pray for the first hour and into the second hour, so many prayer burdens just began to press upon me. Members of this church, brothers and sisters off in other states, and family members. And it virtually possessed me. Finally, around 7 o'clock, I stopped and had breakfast. But the burden of prayer would not leave. Now, since it was a Saturday after the 4th of July, I assumed the church building would be empty. I was correct. The McIndarvers had done their work earlier in the week. And so I came to the church building. For a few moments, I sat back in my cubby hole and tried to type a little bit, but it just wouldn't work. Prayer. And so I went to the prayer room and prayed and prayed and prayed and began to intercede, especially for two particular situations. Two people, oh God, do a miracle in their lives. After a while, I took out my clarinet and played some tunes to God that nobody's ever heard before, ever hear again, perhaps led of the Spirit. Then came in here to my usual prayer spot on my knees and began to plead with God. At about 12.30, I went home. And there the prayer burden still would not lift. And so I thought, I just have to get away from everybody and everything. And I got in the car and began to drive east. I drove east out 31st Street, past Broken Arrow, many more miles to New Tulsa, and a little bit further than turn south, seven miles to Coweta. I was on the roads one used to have to travel between Tulsa and Muskogee before the turnpike was built. Passed through Coweta and circled around the block to see a church building where I'd preached more than re one revival in, in the 70s. Past Redbird, this is a community that was uh, formed by blacks who were freed, slaves who were freed by the Creeks after the Civil War, and they built Redbird. And in former years, any time you'd drive by, the fields were covered with cotton plants, and harvest time you'd see the citizens of Redburg out picking cotton, but this time there wasn't a cotton plant in sight. It was all sod farms with the big pivots 
going over them. I drove on to Porter and remembered the time I'd played in a band there advertising the Shrine Circus. Then on to Tallahassee, where years ago there was a major American Indian school. They were doing their best during those days to cause the Indian boys to lose their language. You had to speak English. You had to wear a white smock. A major school, but today you can find no evidence that it ever existed. They went on to Highway 69 and into Muskogee, began to drive south on York Street. I passed the cemetery where is buried my mother and my father and my younger brother. Then I went to the corner of Live Oak and Lawrence, big two-story house where I'd lived when I started to school used to have a wonderful rambling porch around the front and the side. Now it was all closed in and covered with ugly pink stucco and not in good repair. I had some interesting memories there. My father had a heart attack when we were there. And we had a private nurse named Mrs. Lacey. And during the dust storm, especially Black Sunday in April of 1935, she made all of us wear wet bandanas to protect our lungs from the dust. From there, I went to 928 Summit Street, where I lived during my, most of my grade school and junior high and just the beginning of high school. The memories I have there are too many to recount, but that house was gone. And it had been the property annexed to the house next door where the violin maker, Mr. Burke, used to live. I went to 1120 North K Street. It was in good shape, but on either side, the houses were dilapidated. I drove to the apartment house where Barbara and I lived when we first married. It was gone, just a vacant lot. I went over the viaduct to the YMCA where my friend Gene Conley and I learned to swim as boys and the roof was caved in over the swimming pool and the rest of the building where after work in the evenings, Clue Gulliger and Bill uh, Shields and I would go and wrestle in the evening empty in disrepair. I drove a little bit north to where I used to work on the railroad. The tracks were gone. Loading dock was gone. The big brick edifice, which was the freight office, was gone. I went to Fourth and Court Street to see the church building. Church building where I'd attended church as child, where I had become a deacon where I had taught Sunday school for many years. Where Barbara and I started a youth group with three kids in a month, we had 30. It was where I was immersed into Christ, where I was ordained to the ministry of the gospel. That congregation no longer exists. The building appeared to be used by DHS or some similar outfit for underprivileged children. I drove... 2424 Elgin, where Barbara was born and grew up. Weeds filled the yards, and the house was in disrepair. I started my drive back to Tulsa and realized that as I had driven through what, where I'd lived the first 22 years of my life, I felt like an alien. I didn't belong at all. And then as I began to think about Tulsa, 
I moved here in October of 1959. Next October, I will have lived in Tulsa for 60 years. And you know what? Tulsa has never felt like home to me. It's like a glove that just doesn't fit. It's where I live, but I've never felt at home here. And as I pondered these things, the words of the Arthur Brumley song <laughs> started to go through my mind. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me through heaven's open door. And I don't feel at home in this world anymore. You say that's a message for a man who's almost 89 or somebody like Dorothy. Yes, but it's also a message for you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and are 12 years old. Many scriptures then began to flood my mind. The first being the words of Jesus in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. <laughs> and if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. John, or rather Hebrews thirteen fourteen. Here we do not have a lasting city, but we're looking for a city which is to come. More and more scriptures came to mind. I thought of Paul's statement in Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. From which also we eagerly wait for a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 1 he says. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The Greek word conduct yourself there is polytheistha. Which means behave as a citizen. Isn't that interesting? My citizenship isn't here, really. It's up there, even though I am a citizen of America. And yet, even though this world is not my home, this is where I live. And it's important, as I spend my years upon this earth, that I live them in a manner that is well-pleasing to God. There's an old statement concerning some people. He's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. <laughs> I pray that will never be true of me. So how do we begin living a life that is well-pleasing to God? Well, of course, it has to begin with our conversion, doesn't it? It has to begin by hearing the gospel, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then we have all kinds of statements in the gospels about salvation. Some say if you have to repent to save and say you have to believe and some say you have to confess. How do we make sense of all of that? The only way I know to make sense of it is to listen to the clear command of Jesus and the model displayed by the apostles as well as what they taught. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and upon earth. Go ye therefore and immerse all nations, 
immersing them in the name of the Father, into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That's where it has to begin. Summarized by Peter on the day of Pentecost, repent, every one of you, and be immersed in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promises unto you and to your children and to many as are far off, as the Lord our God shall call. Now I know today that there are many preachers, and I believe they are very sincere, and I would never judge them, who preach something else. (laughs) And they have to answer to God, not to me. But I can only preach what Jesus Christ commanded. I can only preach what the apostles taught. I can only preach what the apostles modeled, and the nine cases of conversion in Acts and the epistles all display the exact same pattern. Hear the word, believe it, repent, metanoel, change your mind about who Jesus is, be immersed into Christ, receive the Holy Spirit, and then live a faithful life. That's what Scripture says. But what does it look like to live a good life that pleases God? Here's 1 Peter 1, 15 and following. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's quite a statement, isn't it? The word holy is the Greek word hagios. It means separated or apart. God is separated. We do not in any way influence God to be who he is. He is who he is. And if the whole universe should dissolve, he still exists. He is apart. And when we as Human beings are urged to be holy. The idea is we too are set apart. We're set apart to God and we live lives that reflect Him. Somebody says, what's good? What's good is that which uh, reflects the character of God Himself. That is the measure of good. Interesting, in 1 Timothy 4, 7, we're urged to discipline yourself. Some versions say exercise yourself. For the purpose of godliness. Think of that. Now we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Which causes the fruit of the Spirit to grow. Love, joy, peace, so on. But most of us along the way can say. Here's an area in which I'm not quite there yet. Our Romans 12 says. Be not conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so on and so on. But that's a process. And until we're there, then we have to exercise a choice and make decisions and choose to live a godly life until it becomes our nature to do that. Train yourself unto godliness. And every place we go, let us live the way Jesus would live. Some years ago, Bruce brought a word from this pulpit 
when the WWJD movement was rather popular, what would Jesus do? And Bruce spoke about the bracelets that we wear. That's a good idea, isn't it? Every situation you're in that you wonder, what's the right thing to do? Ask yourself, what would Jesus do here? 2 Corinthians two fourteen to 16 Thanks be to God, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ. And manifest through us the sweet aroma. Manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Don't you want to carry the sweet aroma of Jesus into every place you go? And that's possible as the Holy Spirit fills us, manifests himself in us, that everyone who meets us, we pray will meet Jesus Christ. You know, as we start looking for standards of behavior, one of the first places we can go is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Read that thoughtfully, paragraph by paragraph by paragraph, and it tells you what a godly life really looks like. Also, we're to encourage one another. Hebrews ten twenty four. consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Bill has often said there's someone who starts to stray from church before long, you know where they're going to end up. It's important as Paul, or rather the book of Hebrews urges in 10.12, do not forsake the assembly of yourselves together, but come together that you might stimulate one another to love and good works. There's something that just happens between us, isn't there, as we live together with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're to have a proper perspective on all the treasures of this earth that come into our hands. Hebrews again, chapter ten, thirty-four. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Notice you you were happy when they took it away from you because you're a Christian, that's why they did it knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Some years ago, when Barbara and I were on a ministry trip in various states, we were gone, I forget, my, uh, four to six weeks while we were gone, we had various family members stay in our home, some blood, some by marriage. And one of the things we did on that trip was spend time in Stanton, Virginia. And part of the activity that weekend was a men's retreat. And so I went with the men on a men's retreat. The younger guys were doing a ropes course and all that stuff which I stood on the mountain and watched them. <laughs> and I was sitting in a pickup truck with old Papa Knopp, and we began to talk about material possessions. Papa Knopp says, it's all going to burn. <laughs> it's all going to burn. When we returned from that trip, my great uncle's gold pocket watch was gone. My skill saw was gone. One of Barbara's rings that Mark had bought her was gone. On and on and on I could go with a list of things that those who had stayed in our house 
had stolen. Papa Nop's statement came back to me. It's all going to burn. <laughs> I could have become a detective and tried to figure out who took what, but I thought they're going to answer to God, not me. <laughs> it's all going to burn, knowing that I have a better possession. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And then we are having that attitude toward world, this world's goods to help one another. John, 1 John 3, 17, Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Have the right attitude toward this world's goods, but realize that with them we can be generous. Now, there's a caveat to give here. Paul didn't just say freely give to everybody but certain ones. For example, to the Thessalonians, you read in 2 Thessalonians, you said, As I preached to you when I was there, if a man will not work, he should not eat. So if somebody's sitting down as a bum... <laughs> Saying, I'm hungry, Paul says, get a job if you can. Some can't, of course. And then what about widows? Writing to Timothy, he said, if there is a true widow in your church, the church is responsible for her. Now, let me describe what that means. First of all, she has to be over 60. Secondly, no family members that can take care of her. And secondly, while she was under 60, she cared for the church, washed the saints' feet, showed hospitality, was a good wife, a good mother. She had an exemplary life. If she meets all those conditions and doesn't have any nephews or children or any relatives to take care of her, then she's the church's responsibility. <laughs> Not just because she's a widow, but because she has no other means. And sometimes the best thing we can do for someone who is in need is ask them why. Often they can't help it, but often they need somebody to help them figure out how to manage the money <laughs> rather than just take money. We also are urged in Scripture so many times to practice forgiving those who have offended us. We think of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forget our debtors or those who transgressed against us. And then it says, if you forgive men, the Heavenly Father will forgive you, but if you don't, he won't. That's something to think about, isn't it? That's something to think about. For, for some of us, forgiving is just downright hard. <laughs> There's something in us that just wants to kick the teeth out of somebody that's kicked us in the teeth. <laughs> But you know, forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. We've said before from this pulpit, I can forgive someone, harbor no ill will against them, totally bear no grudge for them at all, as is true of those who stole from my house. But if I knew who did it, I'd never invite them to stay in my house again. <laughs> you see, I don't have to be an idiot. <laughs> And somebody has defrauded me, give them another chance to defraud me, even though I harbor no ill will against them. 
Another thing about giving, you remember when Peter came to the gate beautiful and there was this man who was panhandling, a cripple? And Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such I have give I thee. Stand up and walk. There's a lesson there. You cannot give what you don't have. And I must say in my own life, I've gotten in trouble before giving what I didn't have to give, and then I ended up in trouble. I've been a fool in that line. And frankly, that's a weakness I have. It's hard for me to not do that. (laughs) I try to be responsible, but I'm not always that good at it. But if in this life we lead a God-glorifying life, haven't been born again into the kingdom and live as a citizen of the kingdom, wow, what a great outcome. What a great outcome. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher, some versions say perfecter, of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Think about Jesus. Everything that he went through, he knew there was something waiting. Now, he had a little advantage over you and me. He had been to heaven. He knew what it was like. (laughs) We haven't. But he set the example for us of having endurance in this life because of the joy and the treasure that is laid before us. We don't earn our way there, but we display the fact that we are a citizen of the land in which we someday will dwell. And what a tremendous thought that is concerning what's ahead of us. By the way, the Greek word that you translate such a great a cloud of witnesses. The Greek word is martus. Martus doesn't mean somebody watching you, but it means somebody who has seen or done something and is bearing testimony. Like in a trial, a witness bears testimony about what they have seen. And those described in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1, are those who have lived a faithful life. It's reflecting back on chapter 11, where all of these examples of faith are there. And they have, they're witnessing to what that's like and what their hope is. And therefore motivating us to do the same thing. Thank God for that catalog of the, of the faithful. And you know in verse 14 of that chapter, it says, Now these came from a country that they could have gone back to. When you read about Abram, the place from which God called him was one of the most prosperous cities in the ancient world. One of the most advanced. Matter of fact, archaeologists found these kind of tubs with holes in the bottom. They couldn't figure out what they were. One day they realized they were bathtubs. Think of that in that ancient world. A bathtub just like you have in your bathtub or your house, a bathroom at home probably. But out of that, God called him. And so verse 14 of 
Hebrews 12 says, if they wanted to, they were looking for a city, they could have gone back there. But he said that's what they were, not what they were looking for. They're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. That's their martus to us. That's their witness to us. Now, even though Jesus had seen heaven and has kind of an advantage over us, you know what? I don't plan to spend eternity in heaven because there will come a day when the heavens and the earth will melt with fervent heat. And according to Second Peter, God will create a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth the righteousness. That's our eternal home. Think of that. Now, we have all kinds of people who teach eschatology that they spell out this going to happen, this sequel. I don't really know how it's all going to happen. I kind of have some assumptions. My assumption is that we'll be resurrected when the trumpet blows and Jesus comes and we'll be gathered with him in heaven. <laughs> and then God next will do that getting rid of the heavens and earth stuff <laughs> and making the new one wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's just opinion. I don't know for sure how it's all going to work out. But there's something I long for more than that. Some years ago, attending Shirley McWilliams' brother's funeral, the thing said about this man, who obviously had been a good man, a godly man, a preacher, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Shirley. Yes, she's nodding her head yes. And as I was leaving there, I began to wonder, when I'm gone, what will they say about me? And then this thought came, and that has been my abiding thought. I don't care a hill of beans what you say about me. <laughs> what I do care about, well done. Well done good and faithful servant that's the treasure I long for well done good and faithful servant this world is not my home and I believe that's true of everybody in this building we're just a passing through <laughs> our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue may God bless you